Hello and welcome back to Philosophy Over Tea, the podcast where you join me as I explore the tremendous world of philosophy. Hosted by myself, Sahar, we look at a number of philosophers, essential texts, and even upcoming technologies along the way. In today's episode, we take a look at the meaning of life and why it is so important. Welcome to Philosophy Over Tea. What is the meaning of life? That's probably the most stereotypical question a philosopher could ask, but it is a serious one to ponder. Everyone at some point in their life will ask themselves these questions and probably have a few existential crises over it. What does my life mean? What does any of humanity mean? If everything that we know and love will eventually cease to exist, does my life and what I do in it even matter? And then there's the question of how the afterlife weighs into this. Does my life only matter because it is a test for this afterlife? It's a test of whether we get into heaven or hell, the good place or the bad place? Or does it matter on its own? All these questions and more have been the subject of centuries of debate and discussion among philosophers, and I'll aim to explore many of these throughout this podcast. But before we dive into that, why do the answers to these questions even matter? To understand this, I'd like you to imagine a world in which your life, and everyone's around you, is completely and utterly meaningless. A nihilist world. Today's world often feels like this, so it shouldn't be too hard for most of us. Think about your life, and the way it has been marked with pain and loss. How your life will end with you decrepit and old, and then dead. Even when we aren't sad and miserable, our life is filled with trivial exercises. We wake up eat, go to work or to our classes, watch a TV show, read a book, go to sleep, and then do it all again the next morning, repeating the same cycles over and over again with the occasional sprinkle of excitement. Usually, we're too focused on each task, wondering whether we'll get good enough grades or how to pay the next bill that's going to come up to ever think about what our life means. But when we describe it as such and look back on it, it's simply rational to wonder why we even bother with it. And that's only looking at our life at the small scale on Earth, surrounded by countless other people. What about our place in the vast expanse of the universe, the cosmos? There is so much of the universe out there that we are quite literally inconsequential compared to all of it. To visualize how small we are, the entire Earth, everyone you've ever known and loved, every hero or villain, every book written and every story told, is only the diameter of about 0.04 light seconds. It's not even a light year, it's just 0.04 light seconds. The visible universe, on the other hand, everything we can see in the universe, has a diameter of about 98 billion light years. This means that it would take light 0.04 seconds to go from one end of the Earth to the other, but it would take 98 billion years to go from one end of everything we've seen of the universe to the other. And there's even more out there. If you take the entire visible universe and put it into the size of a tennis ball, everything that we can't see, the unobservable universe, would be the size of a small planet around that. If you'd like to visualize this better, I'll include a video down in the description below. Looking at the immense size of the universe compared to us, 
we might question how anything we could ever do would ever matter in the large scale of things. We live our entire lives in this just tiny, minuscule corner of the universe. And in the blink of an eye, we're dead. Another blink, and every record of your existence is gone, like you never existed at all. Another blink, and all of humanity is probably gone. How then could anyone say that we matter? Now a life like this that has no meaning seems awfully dull and honestly quite painful to live through. Suicide might even be a better alternative. And yet we live through each day and we find joy and happiness. We find meaning in little things. We believe that we have purpose in our life and we see suicide and death as bad things, as sad events. So there must be some meaning to our lives. Well, after that rather intense downward spiral, let us explore what the meaning of life could be. First, let us make the distinction between two situations that we search for meaning in. The first of these is having meaningful lives, which attempts to respond to the first of the two worries, which is about how everything we do is trivial in day-to-day -day lives, and it basically gives meaning to the things we do daily. The second of these situations is about our place in the cosmos and the meaning of humanity itself. This episode will take a deep dive into the current leading discussions and theories on the first type, and I'll look at the second one in later episodes. A particular philosopher that I've studied and will be discussing today is known as Susan Wolf. She's quite a recent philosopher and is currently a professor at the University of North Carolina. So if you ever thought philosophy was all just discussing dead people here, this is just one example of a modern philosopher. The theory I'll be discussing later on is from her book known as Meaning and Life and Why It Matters. It's quite a fascinating read and I'd recommend it to anyone fascinated by this topic. Before diving into Wolf's main theory, she highlights two other sort of pre-theoretical views and attempts to combine their appeals in a satisfactory manner. The first of these views is akin to something many of us have heard before, to find your passion and go for it, as it were. This view tells us that you can do anything you wish to with your life, so long as you love doing it and you find fulfillment in it. You shouldn't get caught up in other people's expectations or worry about contributing to society, but you should rather focus on doing what you love to do, what you find fulfillment in, be it taking care of loved ones, studying science, or even just sitting around smoking weed all day. If you find fulfillment in it, then it's worth doing. A quick note here though is that fulfillment is different from enjoyment. The activities that we find fulfilling are not always the most enjoyable ones. Take exercising, for example, or training for a sport. Many individuals find fulfillment in running marathons, for example, and I can tell you from personal experience that getting up to that distance, running over and over again, getting closer to those long distances, can be downright miserable at times. It's often a mental as well as a physical struggle to push through and keep going, despite how much you want to give up and stop, so it definitely is not always enjoyable. And yet, this is a labor of love and one which is fulfilling, and so this view would tell us that it is worth doing. However, there does exist a major issue with this view. As it stands, the only thing that matters is the positive experience of fulfillment when doing an action. If this is the case, then only subjective experiences matters, and anything at all could be meaningful as long as it's fulfilling. 
Now to see why this is an issue, consider the lives of a few people I'll mention here, all of whom find immense fulfillment in what they do. Say we have one person who just sits around smoking pot all day long, and another one who does nothing but measure blades of grass outside. Now both of these people, if they tried, could be immensely intelligent people and contribute really well to the communities around them, but they find fulfillment in doing these things. Now both these people find immense fulfillment in what they do, and yet we would be tempted to call their lives meaningless, so it cannot be that the only thing that matters is fulfillment. Taking a closer look at why we feel as though these lives are meaningless, many might say that it's because they don't contribute to anything outside themselves. Their value is entirely subjective. The second view that Wolf expands on attempts to solve this issue somewhat. The second pre-theoretical view, sometimes dubbed the larger-than-oneself view, argues that the best life is one in which you contribute to something that is, essentially, larger than yourself. That is not to say that the thing is physically larger than yourself, a field full of grass would be physically bigger than the person measuring the grass, but rather these things should be metaphorically larger. It essentially means that you should be involved with something that is outside yourself, that derives its value from that which is outside you. Through this view, one's life has meaning if they can meaningfully contribute to or are involved in things that essentially have objective value. Objectivity here means that you should be able to look at yourself and what you're doing from the perspective of an outsider and still find value in the things that you're doing. Still find that the things you're doing have meaning. This case successfully gets rid of the objections from the first view we discussed, in that lives that are based on things like smoking or measuring grass will not be meaningful, while other lives such as a life dedicated to charity or a life dedicated to studying will be considered meaningful. However, there still exists an issue with this that Wolf raises. This view is based entirely on objective values, i.e. things that are outside oneself. It has no regard for your personal attitude towards your actions. To see this issue in action, consider someone who gives every single bit of disposable income they have to charity, and they are absolutely miserable for it. They don't have any money to spend on themselves, and instead, every paycheck they get, as soon as they pay their rent, they get their necessities, they give all of it away to charity. According to this view, this person is leading a really meaningful life, regardless of how much they despise it. And many of us may see an issue with this. However, there may be some who argue that the life has meaning, regardless of one's mental state towards it. Consider, for example, the life of a surgeon. Let us say that they have been forced into being a surgeon by their parents, and they despise doing it, and yet they feel a sort of moral obligation to do it. They know they have the skills to do it, and so they say, well, this will be my meaning in life, this is what I will do. But they don't find any fulfillment in it personally. Do we still say that that life is meaningless? A lot of people would say that yes it is, because they personally had no stake in that. A lot of people would argue that no, their life is very meaningful, considering how many people they might have saved. Returning back to Wolf's ideas though, she would agree that the life is meaningless, and that the life requires some positive mental state towards it, in order to have meaning. So we see from the examination of these two views and their issues, that we require a subjective 
as well as objective perspective to determine the meaning of life, which leads us to Wolf's fitting fulfillment view. Wolf's theory of a meaningful life, dubbed the fitting fulfillment view, attempts to combine the subjective and objective theories and ensure that they are linked in a suitable way. It isn't enough to just have the two elements together in the things you do. Looking back at the person who smokes weed all day, suppose that them smoking stops rats from infesting the houses nearby, which then stops the people around them from getting a bunch of infectious diseases. This person has the subjective element, they're doing what brings them fulfillment, and they now also have the objective part. They are bringing good to something outside themselves, they're benefiting their neighbors and the community around them. But we still would not consider their life meaningful, so we need some way to link the two. Enter the fitting fulfillment view. In one sentence, Wolf says that a meaningful life is one where you love objects which are worthy of love, and you can engage with them in a meaningful way. This view argues that you need to have the subjective elements, but you also need those subjective elements to be in some sort of relationship with the objective parts. They can't just be byproducts of your actions. So in this case, any action that you're doing, you need to sort of have the intention behind it to do the positive objective part as well. And this view seems to cover all the bases and more that were discussed. We have the objective value in that the things we do can be seen from an outsider's perspective and still be seen as meaningful. We have the subjective value in that we find personal fulfillment, we find personal pride in the things that we would dedicate our lives to doing. And through communal service and contribution, we also satisfy our social purposes, which Wolf argues we have due to being social creatures. However, while the fitting fulfillment view does help many of the issues brought about by the other two views, it does have some questions and objections of its own. Consider, for one, that this view requires the existence of objective values. But what even are objective values? Some philosophers may argue that everything is subjective and there can never be any definite objective value. We know that a lot of our societal values and things we call objective are shaped by our environment and they are shaped over generations. So for all we know, these so-called values could have easily been completely different had our societies progressed differently. In our society right now, we say that murder is a bad thing. However, consider a society in which murder was celebrated. It was passed on from generation to generation as like a rite of passage almost. Well, in that case, murder would be an objective good in that society. Another prominent issue for this theory is the existence of morally vicious individuals. These would be people who find fulfillment in committing things that are morally atrocious or repulsive. But what if what they are doing has good consequences? This sort of ties back into the utilitarian uh, discussion we had two episodes ago. In this case then, they would find fulfillment, so they have the subjective part, and they would be doing objective good in the long term. So who's to say that their life doesn't have meaning and doesn't have good meaning at that? One could also wonder about cases such as those in Huxley's novel, Brave New World. In this world, citizens are genetically modified from birth and they are bred to work in certain capacities. Farmers, for example, are designed to farm, and they're also designed to love farming, and they'll have no interest in being in the city, they'll have no interest in studying, etc. 
Coal miners are designed to love mining coal, and to hate wide open spaces. The theory put forward by Wolf suggests that, despite how these people have been manipulated, they still lead meaningful lives, but many of us would disagree with that. These issues highlight some key problems with Wolf's fitting fulfillment view, and answering these questions is a continuous effort, and a pretty lively one too, considering the recency of this theory. Keep in mind though, that Wolf only attempts to argue the first of the two situations in which we search for meaning. When it comes to the second one, our place in the universe, her response is interesting, to say the least. She says, and I quote, Many people are upset by the thought that they are mere specks in the vast universe. They are upset, that is, by their smallness, their inability to make a big and lasting splash. Such people will just have to get over it. Their desire is unsatisfiable. Now this response is not really a satisfactory one to many people, including myself. And it's always enjoyable and necessary, I believe, to discuss things like this, such as our place in the universe. And that's why in future episodes, we will be turning to other philosophers to discuss and examine our place in the universe and what it means for us. After all these theories and having time to think and reflect on them, I sort of had a question of my own. Why is it that, as humans, we look for the answer to these questions? Why can we not just be given a meaning to our lives, to the universe around us? And, well, believe it or not, it was actually a TV show that has gotten me anywhere near a satisfactory answer. There's this quote from The Good Place. Don't worry, I won't be spoiling anything. It goes as follows. After Janet, one of the characters, is asked about the meaning of life, and if it even means anything, seeing as everyone and everything just disappears, she answers, If there were an answer I could give you to show how the universe works, it wouldn't be special. It would just be machinery fulfilling its cosmic design. It would just be a big, dumb food processor. But since nothing seems to make sense, when you find something or someone that does, it's euphoria. Now that line is probably one of my favorite lines from anything I've ever watched or read, and it is honestly such a wonderful sentiment to end this episode on. Well, that is all for today. Thank you everyone for tuning in to today's episode, and please share and follow the podcast if you enjoyed it. Until next time, and have a wonderful day.